So 1 John chapter 3, we're going to read the first ten verses. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared is to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The things that we kind of listed in here earlier and the memories that we shared of our fathers are things that, that speak of their love for us, how, they would, how they'd watch over us, maybe not always step in right away, but have a watchful eye and protection, how they'd make us feel special, how they'd make us feel like we're the favorite, as was mentioned up there, to make us feel comforted and encouraged. The instruction that I think of, the example that they live by. One of the things that they spend a lot of time at throughout their life is even just in the provision and the providing for their families and their children as well. All these things speak of the love of a father for his children. Well, as we look at our passage this morning, that's what he wants us to see. And he's not looking at our earthly fathers, he's looking at our heavenly father. And so we see this greatness of this love that our Heavenly Father has for us. As, as John writes this epistle, that's what he wants these people to see at this moment. In fact, he even starts with that word. He says, see. He's saying, look at, observe, recognize the love that God has for us. That's exactly what we want to do here this morning. We want to consider the love of the Father. And as we do that, we're going to look at four actions that demonstrate His love in our lives. The first action is commitment. God is committed to us. We see that right in the opening verse of this passage. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. God loved us so much that He made us His children. The Bible tells us in other places, in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 and others, that God did this. He made this decision. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. If you look through the Bible, you see that we have been brought into God's family in two different, very deliberate ways. That we've been brought into God's family through birth. Remember he told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless you're born again, you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Not another physical birth, you need a spiritual birth. Well, the Bible speaks of that in many places, that we are born again. We're born into the family of God. But not only does He birth us into His family, the Bible also talks about Him as adopted us into His family. That's a deliberate decision as well. God chose to adopt us, to bring us in as His children. And what does that speak of? That speaks of commitment. 
No matter how you look at it, whether he chose to have us being birthed or to adopt us, to bring their both decisions to have us as his children, to bring us into his family. So it speaks of his commitment toward us. Unfortunately, this is an area where we do find it statistically in our society, we're going downhill a little bit. Fathers are less committed than they used to be. Less fathers are staying at, staying at home rather than more. The family is the backbone of our society. And if there's any place that we need to improve, I'd say that's got to be right toward the top of the list. When we talk about a love that does not share a commitment, we are talking about a very hollow love indeed. When we look throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, well, think of what's, what's another name for those? Old Testament, New Testament, you know, Old Covenant, New Covenant. God is a covenant-making God. When you look all throughout the Bible, you see that. He loved Abraham. And so he chose out Abraham from everybody in the whole world and decided to make his chosen people come from this one person, Abraham. And you know what the first thing he did with Abraham? He made a covenant. Covenant's just a bigger way of saying promise. He made a promise to Abraham. Abraham, you come and follow me. And I'm going to lead you to this land that I'm going to give you and I'm going to make you into a great nation and through you the whole world's going to be blessed. God made this covenant relationship with Abraham. Later on, he reinforces the covenant with Jacob. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. He chooses Jacob to carry that covenant relationship through. Changes Jacob's name to Israel. And that would be the nation of God's people. Later, when he brings his children of Israel out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, he gives them another covenant, the covenant of the law, where he gives them the Ten Commandments and the sacrifices and the priesthood and so many, so many more things. But God is making a covenant. You're my special people. You follow me. I bless you. That's how it's going to work. And when Israel breaks the covenant time after time after time, and God recognizes their unfaithfulness, and He constantly draws them back, draws them back, draws them back, then He comes to a point and He says, you know what? You're unable to keep this old covenant, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And this time I'm not going to write the laws on stone tablets. I'm going to write them on your heart. And it's this new covenant that we get to participate in. That's why when we come to Jesus Christ through faith in Him, God writes on our hearts. He puts His Holy Spirit in our hearts to indwell us and give us strength to draw us near to Him, to keep us focused on Him, to help us to overcome sin in our lives. But you see, all the way along the way, God loves, God covenants. God makes a a commitment, a covenant relationship that He won't break. It's the same with us. When we find that person that we want to spend the rest of our life with, we make a covenant. We pronounce oaths in front of God and this company before God and a crowd of people where we say, you know what, I promise to do this. Sickness and health, better for worse, richer for poorer, and forsaking all others. We make a covenant with each other. Why do we do that? Because we're reflecting the nature of God when we do that. We're reflecting the nature of God, that He is a committed God, that He, when He enters into a relationship, has this loving relationship with people, He doesn't break it, He doesn't violate it. You stay the apple of His eye. You know that phrase actually came from the Bible? Because He stays committed to us. And He defines that. Why did He call Himself our Father? All over the place in the Bible, He's calling Himself our Father. Why? Because if anybody should be committed to us in our lives, shouldn't it be our Father? Shouldn't it be our parents, our mothers too? But of all the people that you would think would be there for you, would have your back, it would be your parents. And so he chooses that kind of a term to represent who he is to us. 
And he says, behold the love. Look, see the love that God has for us. Where do we see it very first of all? Just in our relationship to him. We're his children. He's committed. He's there for us. And we see that all over the Bible. I think back in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, chapter 31, verse 6. It says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. So he promises them that in the Old Testament as they're about to go into the promised land. Don't be afraid. Be courageous. Because I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. You know what? I remember one time when I was a kid, our family always did a lot of camping. And I remember one of the places we used to camp when I was a kid. It wasn't too far from the city. We, we lived in ten miles out of town. There was a, there was a place called Natchez Wonderland. And I remember one time my dad and I went fishing down along the river. We were catching trout out of the river and throwing them in this little basket. And I thought that was pretty cool. And I remember one time we decided we were going to go fish on the other side of the river. Rather than walking all the way up to the bridge and across, we were going to wade across. It was a shallower spot right there. But it was fast moving. It was rapid. And I was a little nervous about it. A little scared about it. That's probably why I still remember it. Until my dad put me on his shoulders. Then I thought it was the coolest thing. Look at that, will you? <laughs> As you're going across this river, and the rapids going around you, and you're moving across. I thought, wow, this is awesome. I was fine up there. It's up on my dad's shoulders. Knew he wasn't going to drop me. Knew he wasn't going to put me down. And that was good. Well, that's what God is telling the people of Israel here, is they're going into this new promised land, and there were going to be enemies on the other side, walled cities that they would have to stand against. And God says, be courageous. You got what you need. It's me. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. Hebrews looks back and quotes that passage. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's saying, I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. I'll take care of you. It'll be okay. Well, in Joshua, back when, remember Moses gives them the book of Deuteronomy where we read through there in verse 30, chapter 31. And then Moses went on to be with the Lord and Joshua is the new leader going into the promised land. And so God comes and what does He do? He reinforces the same thing to Joshua. He tells him, be strong and very courageous. In fact, He repeats it a few times. He tells him, be strong and very courageous. And then He tells him, this is what you need. You need Me and My instruction. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Then you can observe to do according to all that's written therein. Then you shall make your way prosperous. Then you shall have good success. In verse 8, And then right back to be strong and very courageous. Why? Because the Lord thy God is with you wherever you go. As we take in God's Word and we learn from God's Word and we have our Father with us, He won't forsake you. You're following Him. You're digging in His Word. You're you're living your life for Him. He won't let you down. He's with you. You know where we get into the big trouble is when we put His Word aside and decide to go our own way. And we start to go our own way and we stumble and we fall. And then we get into trouble and we're saying, God, where are you? And he says, I'm still right here where you left the path. Come get back over here. And we get back over there. And he says, I'm with you. But it's, it's wherever they go as they're being directed by the leadership of God. The same thing we see through all the history of Israel. It was never God that dropped the ball. It was never God that let the people down in his promises. It was always them. They would turn their back on God. They would worship other gods. They would get involved in other detestable practices that God didn't want them involved in. They would walk away from God. God was never unfaithful to His children. And He's never unfaithful to us. 
Jesus, when he's talking about our salvation, John chapter 10, he says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We're secure in our relationship. If, if God is our Father, that's not something that can be undone. If we have put genuine faith, sincere faith in Him, we're trusting in Him, then we've been born again into His family. And that can't be taken away. He said, nobody can snatch them out of my hand. My Father's greater than all. Nobody can snatch them out of my Father's hand. We are kept secure. We're protected in that relationship with Him. We see in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. If we are a genuine part of the family, we've trusted in Christ. You can never not be part of the family again. Right now, I've got a son that won't talk to me. He hasn't talked to me in about three years. He's cut off all kinds of communication. I try to message him on Facebook. I try to send him texts. I tried to call him. I tried all kinds of different things. Last thing I tried, there's a button you can push so they don't know it's you calling. And I did that, and I called him, and I heard his voice. I said, man, Zach, it's good to hear your voice. And he said, hi. And I said, you know, your mom and I would really like to get together with you and your wife and fix this problem. And he hung up on me. You know what, right now he apparently doesn't want too much to do with me. He's made that very clear. doesn't take away the fact that he's my son. He's still my family. There's not much fellowship between us right now like I would like there to be. But he's still my son. My DNA is still in his DNA. He's still part of my family. And you know, that's, that's what God is saying. God says, I'm committed to you. You're my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. It doesn't usually say my daughter in the Bible, but you know why? I think that's because all the inheritance rights went to the son. So he's saying, I don't care if you're man or woman, you get all the, you get all of it. You're all sons in that sense. But notice the words that he uses in here: imperishable, undefiled, unfading, to describe our inheritance from us. There's nothing that can happen to it. And why is there nothing happen? Because it's being kept in heaven for us. It's being guarded by God. We see our love of our Heavenly Father by the fact that He made us His children, by the fact that He is committed to us. That's the same way we demonstrate our love. Our love, if we claim to have love for other individuals in this world and and for our children and for our wives and we're not committed to them, then we're speaking hollow words. That's That's not a love that I want to have anything to do with. So we see, first of all, is that His love is commitment. Secondly, we see that His love hopes. His love commits. His love also hopes. I love what, what verse 2 does. In verse 2, as we look at it, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. I love that. He says, we know that we have not yet seen what we're going to be. That is so cool. What he's saying is this. You know when you know when you're you first realize that you're you're a parent, that there's a pregnancy, and you get this great hope, and you start to think. You're thinking about all the things that your child is going to experience. You start to think about what it's going to be like to have a child and, and you start to think about how they're gonna behave so much better than you did. 
as you look at it, you start to think through. And what are you thinking about? You're thinking about what your child's going to become. You're thinking about what they're going to be. And we all have the same uh, ideas, roughly so anyway. The Pew Report that was done, I think it was 2015, 2014, they interviewed families of all stripes from very liberal to very conservative and, and everything in between. And they said, you know what? They found that the hopes that everybody had for their children are all pretty close to the same. Number one for everybody, everybody wanted children that were going to be responsible. And then the next one was hardworking, although if you were toward the conservative end of things, religious faith outranked hardworking. But then hardworking came in right after that. But the, these five things mainly is what showed up that people wanted, that people hoped for their kids. I hope my kids are responsible. I hope they're hardworking. I hope they're, they have a strong faith. I hope that they help others. And I hope that they have good manners. That's what they found. These are the things that people are hoping. Everybody is hoping for their children. They have things that they want their children. We don't necessarily care what they end up doing for a living, what they do for a job. But what we do care about is what they are on the inside, what kind of character they have, what kind of people are they. But at that point, we don't see it yet. We don't, we don't yet see what they are going to be. But what are we doing? We're hoping. We're looking forward to. We're anticipating. And that's exactly what it says right here about us and our relationship with God. It says what we are going to be. We don't see yet. In other words, when we get before God, when we finally come to that last phase of our life, when we're glorified and in God's presence, the Bible says that when we die or will be raptured, one or the other is going to happen, when we die and we are brought into the presence of God, that we are changed. And then we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin in our life. We don't see that yet. So the same kind of hope that we have for our kids, looking forward to, anticipating, you know, I loved when my kids were growing up at each different stage of it. Not that there weren't their struggles, there were. But I loved seeing them overcome different things in their life and grow in different things in their life. I loved seeing them learn how to walk. I loved it when you took off the training wheels on the bicycle, even though it meant I had to run alongside them for quite a while. I loved it when they learned how to drive a car, even though my garage door still bent up a little bit. I loved it when they went off to college and you saw their horizons expand and they, they learned so many more things. Or Tim, who stayed home and worked with, eventually went to work for me. And I see him do things, do some things better than I can that I taught him how to do them. Love watching them grow and, and become who they are. And that's exactly what God is saying here. He's saying with his children, he says, we're not yet what we're going to be, but he's looking forward to it. He's hoping in it. And that brings us to the next point is that all of us, he says in verse 3, all of us who have that hope within ourselves, looking forward to what we're not yet, all of us who have that hope within ourselves, what do we do? We purify ourselves. Now, at this point, he starts talking about the salvation. But it's not the salvation that we often think of. Usually when we talk about being saved or experiencing salvation, we talk about the point that we come to faith in Christ and we're saved from the penalty of sin, the punishment of sin in our lives. That's really not what this is talking about. It says, um, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Then notice what he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. So the whole idea that he's talking about is this idea of continuing to live in sin. And what does he say? He says, we know that he came to take away sins. He came to save us from sin, to deliver us from sin. 
And so it would be a serious contradiction to say that we experience the salvation of God and continue to live in sin. He says it doesn't make any sense. If he delivered us from sin, as in you don't have to go to hell anymore, you're not going to be separated from God forever, then he also is delivering us from sin in our life, in the practices, the habits, and the things that we, how do we live? And that's what he's going down through, through this whole passage, as he's pointing out that, look, the love of God saves you. It doesn't just save you like give you heaven at the end of your life. It saves you now. It saves you from sin in your life. It saves you from, it saves you from drunkenness. It saves you from swearing. It saves you from all the things that you did in your life before you came to Christ should be falling away. In fact, in, uh, in Romans, he refers to those things in chapter 6 as things that you used to do that you're now ashamed of. We should be ashamed of those things and moving on in our lives. And he gives us the, you know what he gives us? He gives us the, um, the, the duck test. You know what the duck test is? I'm sure you've all heard the statement. I never realized it was an actual test, but they, it, if you look it up in the internet, it says it's an actual test. There's an elephant test and there's a duck test. An elephant test is, uh, is when somebody says, I can't really explain it to you, but you'll know it when you see it. That's an elephant test, right? The duck test is a little bit differently. And you could probably repeat it to me once I got it started. If it walks like a duck, right? If it talks like a duck, if it flies like a duck, some people have added to it, if it keeps company with other ducks, it's probably a duck, right? And that's, and that's what he does for us here in this passage. He says, look, if you can continually live in sin, if you continue to live in sin, well, if it walks like a sinner, if it talks like a sinner, if it hangs out with other sinners, it's probably a sinner. That's what he's doing. But on the other hand, if you walk like a child of God, if you talk like a child of God, you hang out with children of God, probably a child of God. And that's the point that he makes. It's the same thing that, that Jesus says when he says, by their fruits you shall know them. It's talking about that salvation. We're not just saved the, the big rainbow at the end or the big prize at the end of our life. God is delivering us now. Our salvation comes in three phases. The Bible speaks of our salvation being saved from the penalty of sin. That means we go to heaven when we die. We're saved from the power of sin in our life. This is a continual process where we grow closer and closer to God and we leave that sinfulness of our past life farther and farther in the past. And the last part is the ultimate salvation where we're saved from the very presence of sin when we're standing in God's presence, and that's when we experience that change, we'll be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And that's why it goes on before this, before this passage leading up to it. In chapter 2, he says, don't love the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. If you're so focused on the things of the world. And then he goes into different kinds of sins, sexual sins and things like that. Sexuality is a beautiful thing that was developed by God or created by God to be a representation or a, a demonstration of the oneness that is in that covenant relationship between you and that one other person. Anything outside of that is, is a violation of God's standards and God's practices and what He designed it to be. 
And so he says, look, if we live in that kind of behavior, if we live in sin in our lives, then it doesn't speak well for us being children of God. So God, what does he, as a demonstration of his love for us, what does he do? He saves us. He saves us not just from sin at the end. He saves us from sin now in our lives as well. We find the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5, verse, verses 1 through 6. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave, uh, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and service for God. And we don't really have time to read through the whole thing right now, but if you read through the rest of that, he, he does the same thing as he's doing in 1 John. He lists all these sins and saying, How do we live in the love of God? It would be contradictory for us to try to live in the love of God and in the activities of the sinful flesh. Just like it says in verse 1 here, he says, look, if you're living in righteousness, then you're a child of God. If you're living in sin, you're a child of Satan. He tells us in First John. So God delivers us. He came to put away the works of Satan to deliver us from that sin in our life. But then lastly is that his love shows it shows, and this is closely relinked. In fact, I also just made it a subpart of the last point. But it's, it's a, that God is demonstrating for us uh, our relationship with him in our life as we separate ourselves from the sin that's around us. Because notice in the last verse, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And that's really what the whole book of First John is about. John was writing to a group of people that said, we believe in Jesus. But their lives may or may not have backed up what they were claiming to be the truth. And so he writes this whole book to them, telling them, giving them a test. Let's see if you're really trusting Christ. And he says, do you love God? You say you love God, but you don't keep his commandments, then you're a liar. Because if these commands are very important to God, and you say you love God, these should be very important to you. And he says, God is love. So if you say that you love God, but that you hate your brother, you're a liar. You cannot love God and hate your brother at the same time, because God is love. And so he just does that with several different things, and he just gives them all these tests. And his end, what is his goal at the end? His, end, his goal at the end is to confirm to them that they really are children of God. You see, our works, we do not become a child of God by doing righteousness. We're unrighteous before we come to God. And we can't do enough righteousness to get to Him. Our righteous works do not make us part of God's family. What they do is they demonstrate that we are part of God's family. You see, it's because God works in our hearts. What does it say in the passage? Because his seed is in us and we're born of God. It's because of God's work in us that produces the righteousness of Christ, which then is fleshed out in our life, and then we can see the fruit of that, and God says that demonstrates that we're part of his family. You know what? It's just like my family and it's just like your family. When I was growing up in my family, there were things that you did and there were things that you didn't do in our family. And sometimes I would see the family of friends and neighbors and things like that, and I would say, well, why can't I do this? They get to do it. Or why do I have to do this? They don't have to do it. And I would get the same answer every time. That's their family. 
This is ours. We don't do that in our family. Or we do do that in our family. That was the answer. You know what? It's the same with God's. God says, look, these are the things. We do some things in our family, and there are some things we don't do in our family. And whether you do or do not do those things kind of demonstrate which family that you belong to. Brings us back to the main point. The love of God in delivering you from your sin will not leave you in it. He will deliver you from it. And so it goes right back to the faithfulness of God. Never say you can't overcome any sin in your life. You absolutely can. Because if you're a child of God, if you're in the family of God, then God's seed is in you. You've been born into His family. And you can overcome it through His power, through His righteousness. Because we have a faithful God who commits, hopes, saves, and shows it to be true in our life. 